comes to the things of your word, may your Holy Spirit convince on the inside, uh, in their hearts, the truth of what they're hearing. Uh, and Father, may we be uh, focused on your word, may we be dedicated to the preaching of it, and that we would not uh, put out our own opinions or our own uh, beliefs or desires, but Father, may we follow your word and what it says. May you help us to have hearts that long for it, to hunger and thirst for it. And then to boldly proclaim it. Lord, may you give us the strength of courage and character in the day that we live to stand boldly for it and without apology. To have love and kindness and compassion for our fellow man, but yet to be able to stand true and faithful to your word. Uh, May we do both, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 11, if you will. Revelation chapter 11. And uh, we're going to... I very briefly touched on a couple of things towards the end uh, of last week. We actually skipped over a section that I'm going to come back to tonight and spend a little more time on because it's something that uh, was going to take more than we had time to deal with last last week. But uh, as we get now to uh, verse number 15, we find the sounding of the seventh trumpet and uh, the beginning of the third woe is, is starting here, uh, or will be starting shortly, in fact, uh, is what it says here in verse number 14. Uh, in verse 15 it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And again, just a statement uh, of the fact that God is the ruler over all that He has created. He has never relinquished that role, while Satan has for a season been loosed and given reign of this world, or given free, uh, able to roam uh, to and fro, the Bible says, uh, seeking whom he may devour. God has retained the fact that he is still the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And at any moment in time, Christ can uh, end everything and bring it all to a culmination and take uh, take over his rightful place uh, in this world. And so understand that his reign is forever and ever. And these four and twenty elders fall down and worship him at the sound of the angel declaring this, uh, which is a wonderful response, by the way, whenever we see God uh, in his rightful place. When we begin to understand more fully who he is and what he is, it helps us to have a more worshipful spirit towards him. It's hard to be uh, crass. It's hard to be sacrilegious. It's hard to um, minimize who God is when we focus in Scripture on the things that the Bible tells us uh, about Him. We begin to understand His magnificence, His almightiness. We begin to understand the attributes of God, His uh, love, His long-suffering, His justice, His holiness. And we go on and on and on listing the attributes of God. And as we reflect on those things and meditate on them and ponder them, we begin to understand more of who God is. And the more we do that, the more we are in awe of Him. And so these folks hear this proclamation from the seventh angel that God is going to be taking His rightful place here of the kingdoms of the world. And uh, which he starts here in chapter 7 and through the end of Revelation. He goes through this process of uh, gaining this uh, control again. And again, we need to understand this, that this is not a struggle for God. God could do this as quickly in an instant as He can over the next three and a half years of the tribulation period. And it still would not deplete His strength or His might or His power. He has chosen to go through the process of what we're going to be reading here uh, from chapter 11 through uh, the middle part of chapters uh, in the early 20s of Revelation. We're going to be seeing the process that God's going to use. And He does this not for His benefit, but He does this for the benefit of bringing judgment to the world and restoring the nation of Israel back to Himself, leading into what we consider to be the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ or the thousand-year reign which follows the tribulation period that we're studying now. And so in verse number 16, the Bible says, "...the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God." And as we have found several times already in Revelation, uh, the things that are said in their worship, uh, there are seven distinct things that we I have found here in verse number 17 that they reference. Uh, first of all, 
They reference His position in that He is Lord. They reference the fact that He is Almighty by saying, uh, God Almighty. They reference the fact that He is presently at rule as God and by saying which art. And then uh, that He has been in control of everything in the past uh, because He was. And He will be in charge of everything in the future and all of His future workings, that which is to come. And then He speaks of the fact that His uh, power is that of great power. And then He speaks of the fact that He is the rightful ruling and reigning King over all that He created. And uh, we find this in verse 17. And uh, understand this, that uh, the world that we live in today, this earth that we call earth, uh, one day is going to be destroyed because it's had the curse of sin on it for so long. And God's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, boy, I can't wait till that day. Can you? Uh, it's going to be a wonderful thing, and we're thinking, uh, looking forward to that. We'll read more about that and talk more about that as we come to it in Revelation. In verse number 18, he goes on to say, "...the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come." Notice it says that they were angry, and yet the wrath is come, meaning it's now. This wrath of God that's getting ready to be poured out on the earth. "...thy wrath is come, and the time..." Notice this, this is an interesting phrase. "...the time of the dead..." that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, uh, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Uh, This is a pretty strong proclamation. And it says the time is now for God to bring judgment. And you notice who is going to be judged here. In verse 18, he makes the statement generally uh, uh, that all of the dead... And they that should be judged, both small and great. There's no respecter of persons here. Every single person is going to be judged, whether they're saved or whether they're lost. Now, the difference that there is, is that there are going to be two separate judgments. We will not be at one of them. Well, we may be in attendance and see it, but we will not be participating in one of those judgments And the lost will not be participating in the judgment that we will be in. And we're going to take a look at both of these judgments tonight according to Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about them. But I do want you to notice this in verse 18. Right in the middle of it, after he says that they should be judged, I want you to notice this phrase. It says, "...and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name." So there is reward for those that have given their hearts and their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, uh, "This we're following Him, we're trusting in Him, and uh, He gives reward to them. So the judgment for them is going to be there to try their works and to see what types of rewards are going to be given. Then we're going to see the small and the great. Uh, and notice he says this, uh, and should us destroy them, which destroy the earth. So there's going to be a judgment for those that uh, fear the Lord, and they're going to receive rewards. There's going to be a judgment for them that have destroyed the earth with sin and have rejected God, and they're going to be given punishment. Uh, And uh, we're going to look at those very quickly. Keep your Bibles handy, and uh, let's look at a few of these uh, together. Let's first turn to John chapter number 5. John chapter number 5. When John speaks of this in verse number 18, as he records these things, uh, he deals with the fact that uh, the dead are going to be brought up and they're going to be judged by these things. And uh, let's look in John chapter number 5 and verse number uh, 25. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Verily, verily, anytime Jesus says this, the, the word verily is an old English word, and it means truly or surely, 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 truly, truly. And uh, what he's getting ready to say, they do this for sake of emphasis. For instance, uh, there are times when a preacher says, to be honest with you, and what we mean by that is not that we're dishonest all the other times, it's to put emphasis on what we're getting ready to say. Uh, that there is, there is absolute surety of the thing we're getting ready to say. And that's the type of expression uh, is used here by verily, verily. So this is a very, very important thing he's getting ready to say. He said, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And uh, he gives an, a reference here of uh, the dead, and he does not make distinction uh, between necessarily those that are saved and those that are lost. Uh, the folks that have passed on, we know that they have some form of consciousness, um, and that the Bible teaches in the New Testament that to be absent from the body now is to be present with the Lord. And so I was talking to somebody a number of years ago, about a year or so ago, uh, at a funeral. They said, well, we know that they're asleep until the time that Christ comes back. And I said, oh, no, they're not. The Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, if you take time to read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we find they were very conscious. Uh, in fact, the rich man was already in torment. And uh, Lazarus was already in Abraham's bosom. Um, we find that Paul speaks to the fact that we are absent from the body, uh, he told the Corinthian church, and to be present with the Lord. And uh, the idea that uh, there is a, a consciousness there, and there is some for, form of physical body, for, for whatever reason we don't understand, the Bible hasn't told us fully what it is, but it is an indestructible body. It's not, I don't know that it's... The, the final glorified body that we'll have at the end or not. There's some discussion to be had regarding that. But I do know that the bodies that they have now, both in uh, the place of torment in hell and those that are in heaven, have some form to them. Uh, the reason we know that is the rich man uh, said his, he was tormented in his flame. He wanted Lazarus to take his finger. So Lazarus obviously had a finger. And he said to dip it in water and to cool his tongue. So the rich man obviously had a tongue. Uh, the fact that uh, the rich man could see and could talk uh, gives indication that there's some form to them. It's not just some spirit out here floating around, but there's something that can physically sense the torments of hell uh, and the, the joy of heaven. Uh, and so we understand these things. Uh, also look, if you will, in Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. And uh, let's look in verse number 21. Acts chapter 24, and verse number 21. Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. There's going to come a time, it's been spoken of by Christ in His ministry, it's been spoken of here uh, by the author of Acts, who says that there's going to come a time uh, where the dead are going to be raised for the purpose of judgment. Um, it's interesting. A lot of people don't realize that the Bible speaks of this. When the, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the Bible says that the graves of many of the Old Testament saints were also open. And for a period of time, people were able to see some of the Old Testament saints. I don't know which ones they were. The Bible doesn't tell us. But wouldn't that have been something? Could you imagine walking down the road and here comes Moses, been dead for 2,000 years? I'm not sure Moses was one of them, but it could have been. You never know. And uh, I don't know when they ascended uh, up to heaven. could have been at the same time that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Uh, but they eventually made their way up to heaven as well. Um, and the Bible refers to them as them and the Lord Jesus Christ as the first fruits. Uh, there are three parts of a harvest. There were the first fruits, and then there was the main harvest, and then they had what was called the gleanings. The first fruits was a sampling of the crop early on in the time of it being ripe. And then you had the main harvest, which was bringing in the, the large gathering of the crop. And uh, then after it was all brought in, uh, there were those that would go back and they would get the gleanings. And I believe that Christ re references the resurrection oftentimes to a time of harvest. He speaks of these things when he gave the parable of the tares and the wheat. Uh, kind of picture it with that. With the idea of Christ being the firstborn from the dead and those that were resurrected with him being the first fruits. Uh, the rapture being perhaps the main harvest, because that's the, when the majority of Christians go to be with Him. And then there will be those that will be saved during the tribulation period. And uh, again, to be uh, with the Lord and uh, would be considered perhaps the gleanings. Now, again, I, don't, uh, I wouldn't say that that is an emphatic truth of Scripture, but it is an interesting analogy that Christ seems to make in Scripture regarding these things. <clears throat> Let's look now to Romans chapter number 14. Romans chapter number 14. So we know that in the end here, the dead are going to be brought forth and are going to be judged. 
in uh, verse chapter 14, and uh, let's look in verse number 11. Paul writes this, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And by the way, that doesn't just mean those that are lost. That means the lost and the saved. And if we're not bowing to Christ now, we will at some point. You can rest assured. Notice in verse 12, it says, So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Each of us will have to stand and give an account of ourselves to God. Now, as a Christian, uh, Paul teaches what that will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you'll turn over there, Paul's going to teach us uh, what this accounting for Christians will be. All right? So let's take a look here. If he, or, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, and let's look down in verse number 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So we're going to be judged for what we have done in our body. Now, I'm thankful that my soul is saved. My sins are forgiven. But my works, the things that I have done, are going to be judged and then I want us to look, he teaches a little bit further uh, on exactly how this will go about back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's turn back there because he expounds on this a little further and uh, tells us kind of how this is going to be judged. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, and let's look in verse number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 11. So these, this is the judgment for those that are saved, all right? We will all stand and give an account. Now let's look in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians and verse number 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So again, we're speaking here of those that are saved. Their foundation has been laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. So there's types of things that we can build on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes this statement in verse 13, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Now, as a Christian, aren't we glad for the rest of this verse? But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So this judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, is for those that have trusted Christ as their Savior. They've, built, they've had the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, but we will stand, we will give an account of our works. Now, that's a sobering thought. If more Christians understood this truth, I think we would see a lot different lives in the lives of Christians. When we talked about the fact that the early on, as we began to study prophecy, I said there's two main reasons that I see that we study. One is for our comfort. The second is for conviction. It ought to bring conviction to us, both how we live and how we serve. Um, if we lived with the idea that I have to give an account for what I did today, and God is going to judge it, and it's either going to come through the fire, shining, and, and I'm going to receive reward for it, or it's going to burn up and I'm going to suffer loss, one or the other. It would change the way we would live. Uh, oftentimes, I think it's necessary for us as Christians to ask the question, am I ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? And not so much in the sense of are you saved or not, but am I ready, am I living the way that I should be to be able to gain reward? Am I living in such a way that my testimony is such and the works that I do are such that they will be uh, coming through the fire of God, the trying fire of God, as to what sort they are? And so I'm thankful that I do not have to stand in judgment for my sin with regards to my eternal destiny. But I do have to stand and give a, a, an account and my works will be judged. 
In fact, so much so the Bible speaks of the fact that every idle word that we speak is going to be judged. Um, might make us speak a little differently. I was talking to somebody the other day that's a Christian, and um, or they claim that they've been saved for quite a period of time and have given a fairly good indication of that by way of their testimony and uh, was sitting there talking with them, and all of a sudden they cussed. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I don't, know, I don't know what happened there. And then it wasn't two minutes later they cussed again. And then it wasn't quite as much shock that time. And then about three or four more cuss words came out. And at some point I thought, you know, if, if we understood that we're going to give an account for those things, those things would never come out of our mouth. I know a lot of people who, who say, well, now that I know I'm on my way to heaven and I can't lose that salvation, then can't I just live the way I want to? You can, but you're going to suffer loss. And I would much rather suffer, I'd much rather gain reward. I'd much rather hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful in a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. I'd rather get the reward from God than suffer loss. And so it's a motivating thing for us to consider these things. And so that's the first type of judgment that the Bible speaks of. Now let's look in Revelation uh, chapter number 20. Revelation chapter 20. And uh, then we'll be through with looking at our two judgments. We will deal a little bit further with them as we get further into Revelation. But I did want to bring these out early on and explain the difference between the two different judgments. The judgment seat of Christ is the one that you and I will stand at and give an account of the works that we've done in our life since we've been saved. Uh, and then the great white throne judgment is the second type of judgment. Look with me, if you will, in Revelation chapter 20. Now, this is only going to be those that are lost. Those who have never trusted Christ as their Savior are the only ones that will be judged in this. I do think, and this is my... I believe that there's some reason to believe that we will be witness to this judgment. I believe there's going to be a lot of sorrow prior to this as we realize how many folks we could have shared the gospel with that we did not. And so let's look in Revelation chapter 20. Let's look in verse number 11. And here John speaks of the second judgment that's going to take place. He says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. By the way, isn't it amazing? No matter how much man tries to run from God, they never can get far enough away that he doesn't see them. The psalmist said, If I ascend to the heavens, or if I make my bed in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I go to the corners of the earth, he says, you're there. Everywhere I go, you're there. Jonah tried to get away from God, didn't he? He couldn't even get away from God when he was in the, the, the belly of the whale. He was still there, and God could still hear his cry. Men cannot get away from the presence of God. He said in verse number 12, and I want you to see this, And I saw the dead, small and great, and here's that phrase again, stand before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. <coughs> and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire." If you're here tonight and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you can re rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You will not be a part of this judgment. But those that have rejected Christ or have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their name is not in the, in the Lamb's book of life. And I, it doesn't say here that only the bad ones are cast into the lake of fire. All of them, whether they're small or great, whether they're rich or poor, whether they are good or evil, there is no respecter of persons. Their only requirement is that their name either is in the Lamb's book of life or it is not. Now, I do believe that the Bible gives some indication that there will be levels of torment. For instance, Jesus said that it will be more tolerable in that day for Tyre and Sidon 
And he does this in reference to those that uh, would be offensive uh, to the little ones. And uh, the idea being that there will be greater punishment for some than others. Uh, I think there are several instances of Scripture that deal with this. I think this is one of them. Because it says the only thing that's going to determine whether they go into the lake of fire or not is whether their name is written in the Lamb's book of life, yet there is a judgment for their works. Why is there a judgment for their works if there's not some level of determination as to the punishment or the judgment to be had? And so again, there, I think there are indications throughout Scripture that speak of the fact that there will be degrees or levels of uh, the, the amount of uh, torment, perhaps, that someone is in, not just for a period of time, but for eternity. Um, there is no purgatory. There is no way for someone, once they are in this place, to come out of it. No matter how many people pray for you, no matter how many candles are lit, no matter how much money you give, there is no way for a person to come out of this place. The Bible says, if their name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they're cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. <coughs> so these are the two judgments. The judgment seat of Christ for Christians, those who have trusted Christ, will be judged for our works, and we will receive reward or suffer loss based on our works. But we will be saved. Amen for that. There will be the throne, the great white throne judgment. Only the lost, or whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, are going to be at that judgment being judged by their works. And all of them are going to be cast into the lake of fire. We won't, we won't suffer that judgment. We may observe that judgment. We may be able to see that judgment take place. But we will not be participants in that judgment if we've trusted Him as our Savior. So, the Bible speaks of this very, very clearly. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 11 now, because that's where we're at with regards to this. As the angel declares in verse 18 that the time has now come for this. Notice again in the first part of verse 18. The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. He says that time has come. So, at this point, the angel is proclaiming, these judgments are moving ahead. They're, they're moving forward. This is taking place. He says, those that uh, should receive reward uh, unto the servants, the prophets, and the, them that fear thy name, uh, both small and great. And then there are going to be those that will be destroyed, who destroyed the earth uh, with their sin and their rejection of God. Then look in verse number 19. We'll spend the rest of our time here tonight. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in His temple the ark of His testimony. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. And I want to talk a little bit about the, thun the, 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 the temple of God for a moment. <clears throat> Look with me, if you will, in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 9. And hold your place there for a moment. Up until this point in history, the day that we're living in here, in 2022, uh, there have been two temples. Uh, there's been Solomon's temple, which was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then there was... Uh, the temple that was restored by Zerubbabel, and later on uh, they finished it under Haggai's ministry, and Ezra and Nehemiah and some of those guys were involved in some of that. Um, Malachi was involved during that time period. And uh, they, they rebuilt the temple, the second temple. It wasn't as glamorous outwardly as Solomon's temple, but God said, I'll fill this temple with my glory, and it'll be greater than the first. Uh, not because of its ornateness, but because of God's presence God's glory in it. Uh, a number of years later, uh, Herod, uh, in order to appease the Jews, uh, does a remodel and expansion of Zerubbabel's temple. It wasn't a new temple, although oftentimes his project to expand and redo the temple uh, is considered by some to be the third temple. It's really just a revitalization, if you will, and a restoration of the nation of Israel to be able to worship in it. Uh, as the it is just part of that uh, time period is only part of that second temple. There will be a third temple built. We found that last week as we dealt with the fact uh, in uh, I think it was First Thessalonians. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, was it First Thessalonians? Let's see if I got the right verse here. I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians, chapter number two. Uh, it speaks to the fact that the um, the the uh, antichrist will sit in the temple. 
And so there have been discussions, well, is there going to be an actual temple built or is just the worship practice going to take place? And uh, I've read a few fellows that who, who think that the temple won't be built. It's just going to be the restoration of the Old Testament practices of worship. But the Bible tells us that the Antichrist is actually going to go into the temple and position himself there as God. And people are going to look at that and they're going to be deceived by him. And even the nation of Israel is going to follow him for the first three and a half years and believe that he is the Messiah. And so we find that in Second Thessalonians chapter number 2 and verse number 4. And we dealt with that last week, so I don't want to reiterate that uh, this week. What I do want to do is talk about there will be one other temple, and that will be a temple that is built during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, other than that, uh, there won't be any more physical temples. So there will be four temples total by the end of all of it uh, that are on the earth or that are physical temples. The temple that is spoken here at the end of chapter 11 is none of those. It is the temple that is in heaven. And uh, the Bible talks about that in Hebrews chapter number 9. If you'll take time to look with me, let's take a quick look at this. Hebrews chapter number 9 in verse number 1. Then verily, the first covenant... So, the first covenant is the Old Testament law. Okay, We have our Bible divided into two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You find a little bit later in chapter number 9 that uh, covenant and testament are used interchangeably in there in reference to those two things. They are, we no longer have the Old Covenant or the Old Testament in place. Jesus said if the Old had been perfect, there wouldn't have been a need for a new one, but there is a new one. So then verily, notice this, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and, world, and a worldly sanctuary. So, God said in the Old Testament, I put in a, a process of worship practices that they were to follow in the Old Testament times. And there was a worldly sanctuary, and He says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil of the tabernacle, of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, the, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, for which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So, follow with me for a moment. In the, in the tabernacle originally, and then later the temple, there was uh, the, the holy place, which was inside the courtyard area, and then there was a, a uh, the, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, uh, there was a building inside the courtyard area, and it was divided in half. There was a, a veil there. And the priests that would daily minister would come into that first part, but they could not go into past the veil, which was considered the holiest of all, or the holy of holies is what they would call that. And uh, so they had these, these ordinances that were to be done daily, and then at special times of the year, they would have feasts and they would have special sacrifices. They would also make use of this during those times. And uh, the, the uh, folks could come into the courtyard area. They were not in, allowed into the... Uh, holies or the Holy of Holies, unless they were a priest. And uh, the high priest was the only one allowed into the Holy of Holies. He only did that once a year. And he did that to sprinkle the blood of the atonement uh, on the mercy seat that was in there, uh, that was over the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where God's presence was. Now notice in verse 8, the Bible says this, "...the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all, was not..." yet made manifest. In other words, people did not have access at that time into the holiest of all. Only the high priest could go in, because the way into the holiest had not yet been made manifest. That's what this verse is teaching us. While at the first tabernacle, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure, notice this, it was a figure for the time, then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. 
All of these Old Testament practices were a picture of things yet to come that had not yet been accomplished. And the practices that they did were a display of their faith looking to those things that were going to come. But the practices themselves were not part of what would make them holy or perfect. So we find that this, verse number 10, it says, "...which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater, notice this, and more perfect tabernacle, not made with what? Hands. There's a tabernacle that exists that man did not build. That is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Wow, isn't that a wonderful verse? I love reading these things. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament. He's the one that stands between us and God and reconciles us. He is the guarantor. He is the mediator of the new covenant that is made at Calvary. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Which is why when the Old Testament covenant was made... A sacrifice had to be made. A spilling of the blood, a death of the sacrifice had to happen in order for it to be a new covenant. Verse number 17, For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Now, uh, you can take some time to read through the rest of chapter number 9, and it's dealing here with the fact that Christ uh, is the mediator of the New Testament how that He fulfills all of those requirements. For sake of time tonight, and I'm not taking it out of context, I promise you this, let's look at verse 28 of the chapter, and we're going to move into chapter 10. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have what? Ceased to be what? Okay, so at the writing of Hebrews, they realized that there was going to be a ceasing of the need for these things to be offered because what had happened at the, at the point of teaching on this? Christ had already died. The veil of the temple that separated the holy from the holy of holies was rent in twain. And for the very first time, man could look right into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God, because there was one who stood between him and God, sinful man and holy God, that reconciled the two and allow us now to have access to God directly. Oh, what a wonderful thought. Verse number 2, For then would not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering, thou what? Thou wouldest not. But a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin that thou hast no pleasure, uh, thou hast no, had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to do the, thy will, O God. So there is a discontinuation when the New Testament comes into effect. The death of our sacrifice once and for all, being the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in chapter number eight of Hebrews the surety of the New Testament. He's the guarantor of it. When we fail. He's the one that keeps us secure in our salvation, 
not us. So when all of that takes place, now let's look down, if you will, to, uh, oh, let's go down to verse number, uh, let's go to verse number 12 of chapter 10. But this man, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are what? Sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had uh, said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. So the Old Testament had a form of worship. God gave them very specific practices. We find in Hebrews, they're not done anymore. They're done away with because the old, the old covenant, the Old Testament is done away with. And now we're under a new covenant. A new covenant where Christ is the surety of our salvation. So, let's take a look here. This is interesting as we get down a little bit further into chapter number 10. And bear with me for a few moments. Let's go to verse number uh, uh, 17. It says, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. There doesn't need to be. It's done once and for all. Having therefore, brethren, notice this, boldness to enter into the holiest. So not just the holy place, but the holy of holies. By the blood of Jesus. So we now have that boldness. We now have the ability to worship God directly rather than through a priest in ordinances. Does God with the New Covenant, the New Testament, does He give us new things that we are to practice? Yes, He does. Let's look at it. All right? Verse 19, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God." So, with this new covenant, He's saying, "...let us..." Look in verse number 22. "...with this New Testament..." Let us, now here are the things that we should do now. Do we have to sacrifice bulls and goats anymore? No. Do we have to practice all the Old Testament practices of coming to the temple daily and observing things daily? No, we don't have to do that anymore. Are there other things He gives us that we're supposed to do daily under the New Covenant? Here they are, okay? Let's look at them. First of all, number 22, verse 22. Let us draw near. What are we supposed to do every single day? We have access to the Holy of Holies. And he says, since we have access to the Holy of Holies, our responsibility now in the way of worship is to draw near to that Holy of Holies, to come into God's presence. We're we're commissioned. He uses this word, we are consecrated to do this. He says, let us draw near. Our walk with God, by the way, ought be the most important thing in our life. Our time spent with Him has priority or should have priority over every other aspect of the Christian life. Before service, before the way we live, our walk with Him better be right. By the way, I have found over the years that when my walk with Him is right, my life tends to be right, and my service for Him tends to be right. It's hard to separate them. But he says this, let us draw near. Notice he says this, with a true heart in full assurance. What are we supposed to do every day? We're going to have full assurance of our, of our uh, salvation. The truth of God's Word. We're to have full assurance of what Christ has done for us. The covenant has been sealed. The covenant has been made. Christ is the surety, the guarantor of it. And we need to have full confidence in this. I understand there have been times... That people say, well, I just don't know if I'm saved or not. I found this to be true. When we trust Christ as our Savior, I'm not saying Satan doesn't ever throw a doubt in there. But there shouldn't be a constant wondering if you're saved. I understand those moments, those fleeting moments that Satan will say, well, you're not even saved. You just did this, and I can't believe a saved person would do that. And you might get that thought for a moment. But I found this. There is an assurance in the heart of a Christian. They know that they know that they're saved. And and while there may be fleeting moments of doubt, it is not what characterizes them. 
There is a full assurance of faith. Notice this, thirdly, they need, we need to have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. It ought to change our sensitivity of our heart to know when things are evil and to have a conscience against them. To make sure that sin remains sinful in our eyes. That we don't grow accustomed to it. This is something that under this New Testament, we don't have to practice the old stuff, but we're responsible for these things to be in our new life. That there, our hearts would be sprinkled from an evil conscience. That there needs to be something that is awakened inside of us that calls sin, sin, and that we eschew and that we hate and that we abstain from those things. That ought to be part of our daily worship to God. Notice he says this, And our bodies washed with pure water. Our, our lives should be characterized by pure living. Amen. We're living in a day where even some of God's people, people that sit in the pews of churches that preach the Word of God, have no problems with immorality or impurity in their lives. And part of our daily walk, part of our daily responsibility, because of what Christ has done for us on Calvary, we're not under the obligation of the law to do those things, but these are things that ought to be now in our lives. Because we have the opportunity to come into the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all, then let us do these things. We need to have our bodies washed with pure water. Then notice this. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. There needs to be a consistency in the Christian life in our profession of our faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. We claim to be a Christian. Let there be some substance to it. We can't just preach the gospel to the world. We've got to live the gospel along with it. There was some debate years ago uh, when I was a teenager about this idea of lifestyle evangelism. Some of you might remember when that was a big thing. And people were on two sides of the issue. Some of them were saying, no, we need to go out here and preach the gospel. And other people saying, we need to go out here and live the gospel. Don't worry about the preaching. And it seemed like they were on two sides on, on the tug of war, pulling both ways. Can I tell you, it's got to be both. You can't preach without having a life to back it up. Nor can you just live the life and never tell anybody about it. We need to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. Christ can help us to do this. Notice what else it says, verse 24. And again, these are things that are the New Testament practices that we do. Let us consider one another to provoke. If I stop right there, you're like, all right, I get to provoke people. But look what it says. To provoke unto love... And to good works. You know what I'm supposed to be doing with the brethren? Encouraging them to love God with all their hearts and to do the works that they learn from Scripture they ought to be doing in their life. I ought to be encouraging them in their walk with God and the life that reflects Him. There ought to be things, I, I ought not do things that would cause them to draw away from the Lord. As a Christian brother, I need to be doing things to encourage us to draw closer to the Lord. By the way, that's not just for preachers to do. That's for every blood-brought Christian. What are you doing to encourage those around you? What are you doing to encourage your spouse or your children? What are you doing to encourage your friends or your neighbor in this area? To draw closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. To walk with Him. To have more joy today than you did yesterday. <clears throat> to have a desire to please Him more today than you did yesterday. What are we doing to help them? Notice this, verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Oh, brother pastor, you had to go there, didn't you? I'll tell you what, these preachers are always harping on not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. This is just what's supposed to happen in a Christian's life. We're saved. We have access now to the Holy of Holies. And because we have that, we need to draw near to God with a pure heart. We need to be steadfast in our profession of faith. We need to provoke one another to love and to good works. And we ought not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. In fact, not ought not. It says don't do it. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the man of some is. But all, what should we be doing? Exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The idea of exhorting means with, with urgency, with passion, to provoke, to encourage, to strengthen the brethren. There ought to be a zeal in the Christian life. I find in the day that we live, there's a, there's a deadness 
And a lot of Christians, we are not doing any of these things that we ought to be doing. Well, you know what? I'm saved, Brother Greg, and I'm on my way to heaven. I'm not under the law. I don't have to do all. I don't have to go out and, and have sacrifices anymore. I don't have to do the observances of the Old Testament form of worship. No, but there is a New Testament form of worship that God has given to us. And when we were granted access into the holiest of all, the writer of Hebrews says, "Let us do these things." We don't have the old practices, but with the new new covenant, the New Testament. We now have been given some new instructions. We've been consecrated for these things. We've been sanctified to do these things. And they ought to be just what normally ought to come about in a Christian's life. This ought to be as normal as breathing to a Christian. It ought not be something we have to strive for. If we're, if we're sitting here saying, boy, I just can't seem to do any of those things, then we need to check our hearts. It could be that we have a profession of faith, but no faith. It could be that we've named the name of Christ, but we've never trusted Him. It could be that we pray for the Holy Spirit to direct us, but He really doesn't live inside of us because we've never trusted Him as our Savior. I'm not saying in every case. I understand there are times we can grow cold and carnal in the Christian life. But these things ought to become the desire of the Christian's heart. They ought to be something that is natural in a Christian's life. That seventh angel begins to proclaim these things. He begins to talk about the temple. The one, the one that's not made with hands. The temple in heaven. There's going to be a worship up there. And the worship up there in that temple is going to follow the pattern, I believe, of Hebrews chapter 10. I believe there's going to be that type of worship in heaven. And if it's going to be that type of worship in heaven, then shouldn't it be the kind of worship we have here? I, I want to encourage us in this. Uh, Revelation is not a dry book of just a bunch of facts and, and prophecies that we can't quite understand. There's a lot of richness in here. And all that we would learn this. There are certain things in the Old Testament law that are given just to the nation of Israel. There are certain laws that are given to mankind as moral laws of God. Those are the ones every man should follow. There are some ceremonial laws that were only for the time of the Old Testament. We do not have to practice those any longer. But now that we have direct access to the holiest of all, we don't now go through the priest any longer. We now come directly to God and we follow these things. I hope that will help you. All right? Let's stand. We'll be dismissed. I went way over tonight. I apologize for that. But it was good. It was worth it, wasn't it? All right. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. What a blessing it is to us. How encouraging it is to us. And, Father, may we take from it the things that we need to know. Help us to live this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.